Welcome to Tales of My Dead Heroes. This is Josh Allen Friedman. In episode 14, we visit Al Goldstein, publisher of Screw Magazine, who defied the laws of sexual repression and democratized sex at a time when viewing genitalia was illegal. Sex was still cloaked in secrecy and shame. You could be arrested for obscenity. As the sexual revolution became a rallying cry of the 1960s, the federal government tried to put Goldstein away for life. The court battles he won played out like scenes in Marx Brothers movies. He became one of the richest and most celebrated men of 1970s New York. Then finally, by the early 2000s, he became the most famous homeless person in New York. I was one of Goldstein's editors in the glory days, and he was a great boss. And so I set out one night to find the great pornographer somewhere in the forbidding labyrinth of homeless shelters. I ended my search at Randall's Island, an off-ramp from Manhattan, at 2 a.m. I saw schizophrenic lost souls roaming the woods like Night of the Living Dead. I was told Goldstein was there. Al Goldstein to me is the biggest sleazebag. He is probably the most sickening, degrading, scum, pervert. That lecherous loser. What about Al Goldstein, huh? Fuck you, Carlisle Hotel. Now, fat you, who interviews slots. Now, fat you, who cares? Al Goldstein. A fat you, who cares? So Sotheby's gets a fuck you. Sean Penn, you are a piece of shit. Fuck you, Jack. You do a segment on your show that's quite famous. I can't say the word here, uh, although at this point I probably could. Uh, it's the, um, well, uh, F-U segment. As publisher of Screw Magazine during its 34-year run, Al Goldstein overturned the boundaries of sexual repression. I was an editor at Screw Magazine and at Midnight Blue, Screw's cable TV show in the 1970s and 80s. I co-wrote his autobiography with him, I, Goldstein, My Screwed Life. Goldstein solidified in court the right of the media to ridicule power. Church, state, and self-appointed moral watchdogs that attempted to silence Screw were brought down in court by the dozen. In 1968, Screw became the spearhead of the sexual revolution. Goldstein endured 19 obscenity arrests in the late 60s alone. A typical bust involved the first advertisements ever published for dildos. The state of New York argued in superior court that dildos could be used for criminally immoral purposes. Goldstein went to jail so that your Aunt Murgatroyd can now buy a vibrator at the corner drugstore. Legend had it that J. Edgar Hoover's last directive was... Get Goldstein. Enduring more litigation and arrests than any publisher in America, Al Goldstein democratized pornography. He was the first man to make it available on the newsstand and eventually legal for the common man. But he had no idea by the time he died in 2013 at the age of 77 that it would lead to the industrialization of porn that oversaturates the Internet today. It was supposed to be a private outlet for everyday Joes back in the day when only rich men or vice squad cops could see it. Here's a defeated Al Goldstein in 2005. The ability 
to be arrested 21 times by the government, the ability to have uh, depositions, say, the United States of America versus Al Goldstein, the gallows humor <clears throat> facing 18 years in jail. You have a world filled with enemies. Don't forget, I had a bodyguard, John Flynn, for 14 mm-hmm. years. I remember when Jordan was growing up, I actually had something called ransom insurance. Calvin Klein's kid was kidnapped, and that's when I put a million dollars worth of insurance on Jordan. I I maintained in order to be as anti-social and be willing to go to jail and to get arrested 21 times, to have that craziness, you can't be balanced with an integrated mind that is thoughtful and meditative, that's what I'm going to say, to be the publisher's screw so with the self-destructiveness uh, uh, comes, uh, comes insanity and madness. It wouldn't take a psychiatrist to classify Al Goldstein as an obsessive-compulsive glutton. His material desires were legend. Obsessed with size, he believed if he only possessed a few more houses a few more cars, a few more inches, this would bring fulfillment in life. Likewise, he once employed four secretaries, two of whom worked full-time ordering his whims circled in mail-order catalogs. Goldstein chased happiness through the acquisition of electronic gadgets. If only he could just acquire more. You're under attack. You're the enemy. You're always uh, doing radio or TV with somebody wants to put you in prison. Uh, all you do is you have lawyers, and don't forget, I, I, I had Pillsbury suing me for $2 million. Farringer was a $2 million case. Well, when you have all these cases, when you're constantly at war with society, uh, you're crazy. I think there's a drive that separates you from other people, and you don't have room for nuances. You're either there or you're not. You're either my buddy or you're my enemy. I think that quality uh, on my part is is terrible. And, and, and now I'm on different medicines. Maybe it's going to help, but you're in a combat zone. I don't think soldiers in Iraq are normal. All they know is, is they're afraid of, of, of road bombs and being shot at. When I, I'm sitting in the back of the limo with John Flynn, and I'm thinking... Uh, if I'm so rich, why aren't I happy? After several decades as the world's premier pornographer, Goldstein's appetites continued unchecked. His self-destruction was epic. He always figured he'd be assassinated or martyred like Lenny Bruce. But it was Larry Flint, his most successful imitator, who took the bullets. Instead, Goldstein spent himself into the toilet and ended up homeless on the streets of New York. Even though your name's in a headline, you can't afford your next meal. Paparazzi stick out the bread line, waiting for you to appear. Worth 11 million in assets at his peak, Goldstein's wealth declined to less than nothing. The east side townhouse where his neighbor was Bill Cosby the extra homes in Pompano Beach and Amsterdam, the chauffeured limo, the hookers, starlets, and Upman cigars, all gone. He became New York's most famous homeless person by 2005. Central Park became his nesting ground on nights he missed Bellevue's 8 p.m. curfew 
The house in Pompano Beach, Florida, is but one of the losses that replayed in his mind as he lay in the gutter with his two shopping bags. The big house in Florida was 15 rooms and 10,000 square feet. So if you look at the Miami Herald, they did a very large article. I think the pornographer next door, I bought a Rolls Royce, I had a BMW, I had a Porsche. I mean, I... Uh, I, I wanted everything because I really did feel my days were numbered. Forever, I had a cigar room filled with uh, 10,000 c- c- cigars. I had, uh, I had the, the largest collection of humidors, so I, I, including George Burns' humidor, which I made $14,000 for. The walls were covered with everything from a letter from Johnny Carson wishing me well. Uh, and there was a guest room filled with clothing. Every room was filled. And there was a 60-foot Olympic-sized pool there. And, and all my possessions have, have basically been stolen. Both was, rep- was repossessed. Everything is gone. I was embezzled by so many people. I was too busy being out old and, and getting my dick sucked. So what happened? Well, for one thing... Screw Magazine was the first place where whorehouses, massage parlors, and sex emporiums could advertise. They all sprang up around Screw. Goldstein took the arrests and set precedents in court. The entire sex business in New York flourished and remained loyal to Screw for this. But as newspapers and magazines declined in the wake of the Internet, most of them, like the Village Voice, became free and siphoned off hundreds of Goldstein's once unique advertisers. If the one thing I didn't consider uh, was that screw would change, that the Internet would uh, uh, come along. I never thought that the Village Voice would have free circulation. I never realized I'd lose my advertising. My very success would bring in all these competitors and rivals. I never imagined that the Internet would make pornography so accessible. Goldstein claimed he lived for hate, and refused to die because it would make too many people happy. Goldstein may have poisoned a thousand friendships, people who loved him, but somehow Goldstein never poisoned his relations with delicatessen men and restaurant owners. Goldstein was the only homeless person in New York to dine on lobster at Le Cirque one night, then sushi at Nobu the next, all on the house. With his gut busting, he'd amble his way back to Bellevue Homeless Shelter, carrying his two shopping bags. Goldstein was a man of pastrami, and he often compared it to his favorite part of a woman's anatomy. He often said that a pastrami sandwich dangled between him and a spread-eagled woman was the only thing that might stop him from going down. I found it satisfying talking to a fat man about food, Jewish ghetto food, and Goldstein had ballooned up to 350 pounds numerous times in his life. Here we are in 2005 having lunch at Cat's Delicatessen on Houston Street. 
thing with pastrami I learned when I worked with Jack at the Second Avenue Deli, there, you, there are three ways to have pastrami. One, if it's too lean, you don't have any taste. Then it could be too fatty. The middle, let, let me lift, lift this up. Lift this up. That's perfect. There's a little bit of fat for taste. If it's all fatty, it's gross. So I always tell them, don't give me it too fatty. Don't give it to me all lean. All lean. Give me right in the middle. And the problem with, with Second Avenue Deli is because it's kosher, it's not as spicy. Carnegie, I think, has good deli. The stage has rotten. Uh, they don't even smoke their pastrami. There used to be a place called uh, a pastrami king, right. Uh, 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 right near the courthouse on Queens Boulevard. That was the best all-time pastrami I had. And then they moved to New York City, and I, uh, the wife t took it over. And I'm told it's not as good. If they don't smoke their own pastrami, what's the point? Second Avenue Deli had, had wonderful, brisk, wonderful brisket, really good brisket. The moisture, the taste is good. Again, uh, uh, kosher isn't good, and, and you can't have pastrami that's not cured. You know, and to me, I don't know if you agree with this, corned beef is just boring. Here's Katz Delicatessen's head chef, Kenneth Cohn, discussing the aesthetics of carving pastrami. The chef said, one day I gave Al a whole bunch of different cuts of pastrami to demonstrate the differences. People don't realize what a wonderful man Al is. Every Pat Robertson and schmuck out there, you need an Al Goldstein to balance things out. You want the juice, you want the navel, you want the top part of the navel piece, and you want the trim. And the top deck with the bottom deck, of course, cut off. I'm not trying to hear from a chef in a hooker. We get a kickback from every cardiologist in New York, said Kenneth Cohn. I'd rather hear from a chef than a hooker, said Goldstein. In Los Angeles, Goldstein's favorite was Cantor's on Fairfax. Cantor's is my favorite, the great cheese blenders. I made a move on this woman, Jacqueline. She's the manager, very pretty brunette. Uh, I didn't realize at the time she was married to a, to a doctor who became my doctor. Uh, uh, but but I always make fun of her because you get two cheese blinces for seven dollars, and at the Carnegie you get three. Of you pay twice. The great pornographer didn't really enjoy restaurants as much until he became famous. Before he became a big shot in 1968, he felt he was nothing and walked into a restaurant with his head hung low. In Goldstein's dog eat dog world, you were a player or a loser. His sense of values was somewhat similar to President Trump's, and you showed yourself off in New York restaurants. You picked up the check for a dozen sycophants, you took bows. Did you go to the stage on Max Asner's work? No, I was nobody. Uh, 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 and, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the, by the time I made it, all these people were going to... Did you, did you ever go to Wendy's find the same thing? There? No, because I, I hadn't made it by then. Or the store club. No, you know, nobody wants you when you're just a failure. You're just a tourist. Uh, in college, when I was 21, I was in the Army, 19 to 21. When you don't have money or leverage, you're you're fucking, yeah, you fucking, you, you know, you're a when you don't have money, you're nothing. He took me to great restaurants when I worked for him, so I took him to great restaurants when he was broke, and got him groceries at Russ and Daughters. 
Have you ever been to Ruxton Daughters? When I had money, I drove there. I, I, I would when get. When you were younger. Well, my father didn't have that much money, but when I was rich with the limo, I would go there. I would send my driver down there every other week, and then have the herring and wine sauce and the herring and the cream sauce. And I remember Nova. I remember my my father didn't have that much money, so he'd buy a quarter pound. So when I was rich, the great joy wasn't the townhouse, but I'd buy two pounds of Nova. Young Alvin Goldstein, a lower-middle-class bedwetting stutterer from Brooklyn, learned how the world works when he saw how his poor father was treated. Sam Goldstein was a Daily Mirror news photographer who brought Al to ringside at Rocky Marciano fights to the dressing room of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Al saw the power of the press in action, the proximity to great events, beautiful women and men who were big shots. When the Daily Mirror folded in 1963, he saw all his father's friends disappear. When my father worked for the newspapers, he had friends calling all the time for basketball tickets, for baseball tickets. And then when uh, uh, the Daily Mirror folded, I, 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 remember, I remember that the phone was silent. And it, it was for me a lesson in how shitty people are, and their opportunists. And that's why it shouldn't come as a surprise to me that at age 69, I'm basically, in my own mind, washed up. I'm sure Tyson or, or, or any boxer who's had something who has the uh, 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 boxers. Yeah, not that smart to start with. You know, when I read about Frankie Lyman and the teenagers, you get abandoned. That's when you, and then you substitute drugs. Maybe a very potent little man would feel that way if he has 20 women carrying his child. At least I had 1,800 issues. So wrote well over a thousand editorials, his fuck you column that led off each issue of Screw. While average Joes shriveled under the daily indignities of life, frozen in a silent scream, something set Al far apart from the little man. He published Screw, seen by a hundred thousand businessmen who traveled to New York each week. He said he was motivated by hatred, not love. Without as many enemies, he would not be able to get up in the morning. Unlike others who reached success, Goldstein was not warmed or tempered by it. He remained angry and only got crazier. Geraldo, I wouldn't let you lick the sweat of my balls. The dry cleaner that stained his shirt. The airline that botched his reservation. Fuck you. Fuck you. The salesman at 47th Street Photo that turned his head and yawned when Al asked a question. Sony sucks. Sony is a piece of shit. They were fucking with Citizen Goldstein. The Hebrew pit bull. The wrong customer. And that's why he was cheered by cops, firemen, cab, truck, and bus drivers, mailmen, Chinese waiters, and even sanitation workers hanging from garbage trucks on the streets of New York. Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! I'll summarize a couple of editorials as they appeared in our book, I Goldstein. In 1984, the New York Public Library presented an exhibition called Censorship, 500 Years of Conflict. It featured Renaissance novels, Negro authors once censored, now accepted. Screw and Midnight Blue were barred from the event. It's not something we feel you should cover, said the shrill female public relations hack in charge, under library chairman Vartan Gregorian, if indeed that was his name. 
As long as censored words remained safely diffused behind a wall of centuries, everyone was safe. Screw reprinted the library's full-page Times ad, revising it to 501 years of censorship. A year later, Screw editor Josh Allen Friedman brought a stripper with him to the library's Locking Out Burlesque Symposium, part of their Suppression and the Stage in 20th Century America program. Dressed inappropriately, she was denied entry, and Friedman had to send her off in a cab. Chemical Bank, Morgan Guarantee Trust, and the Republic Bank of New York all threw out my accounts when they found out I was publisher of Screw. I shitlisted all three. Soon after, two top chemical bank executives were sentenced to jail for using the bank as a money laundering operation for a drug cartel. Anyway, I was pleased to take my business to the first women's bank when it opened, an outgrowth of the heady days of feminism. The gals promptly bounced the largest check of my business career. I immediately shitlisted them in screw, and in no time at all, Crane's New York business reported that men had been called in to take over nearly all leadership posts. I ended the account, this time by my own volition. But I kept a women's bank gold card because I liked people's reactions when Al Goldstein, demon chauvinist incarnate, whipped it out to pay at restaurants. Injustices. This represents a major injustice. Camera world. My ex-wife went here to return something, and they said we don't return. They do switch and bait. This is a store that should be closed. It's a criminal operation. If I uh, were an attorney general, I would use the RICO criminal statute to close this place. Switch and bait. This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. We got more Goldstein if you want it next episode. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm for photos and links. See you next time.